And also, as you are doing that, go ahead, and if you have your Bible or your iPad or your phone or whatever it is you're going to access the Bible from today, um, grab that and find your way to Matthew chapter 10. Uh, if you were here last week, I know I wasn't here. I was enjoying the beautiful scenery of Fresno. The only thing exciting about Fresno is my family lives there. I'm sorry if you're from Fresno. I didn't mean to diss you this morning. But uh, we had a family reunion, and uh, John Looney spoke last week and did an amazing job of talking about freedom and the freedom that God wants to bring in our life so that ultimately we can be people who help others experience that same freedom in their lives. Again, along the lines of what we've been talking about for quite some time is mission. This morning we're going to talk about the, the courage that it takes to follow Jesus and his mission. And, and before we get to the specifics of today and, and of the passage we're going to look at, I just wanted to take a step back for a moment. And I know sometimes when we're like, we, we've gone, this is a long series we're going through. We went through Matthew 5 through 7. We talked about the Sermon on the Mount and the things that Jesus calls us to. This is what it looks like to live the life of a disciple or follower of Jesus. And then we've been in mission for uh, quite some time now going in Matthew 10. And it might feel like every Sunday you come and it's like mission, 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 mission. And you're like, okay, mission overload, you know, time out. It's too much. And I think sometimes we get to that point because we can miss the big picture of what God's mission is about. We can think of mission and we think about work and about, about a missionary who goes somewhere, about something that's difficult and something that other people are called to. But we forget what the overriding picture is of what God is doing and why his mission is so important. And just a reminder, remember what God's desiring to do in us and through us is huge. God loves us and loves the world so much that he does not want humanity to be apart from him. And because of our own decisions and our own failures and our choices to do it our way, we have separated ourselves from God. And so now for all of human history, God has been reaching into humanity and the ultimate one is sending his son Jesus to die on the cross, so he takes that gap and that failure and that barrier between us and God, and he erases it through the forgiveness he brings on the cross so that we can be reconciled back to God. That is the overriding picture of human history. That is why you and I are here today. That's why we still exist. That's why time still unfolds every day is because the God of the universe is patient, and he doesn't want anybody to miss out on being with him forever. That is, the, that is the, in a nutshell, that is God's mission. And he calls you and I, once we say yes to Jesus, to be a part of that miss, mission, to be people who not only experience reconciliation with God, but we help others to experience the same. Now, when you and I just take for a moment, let that settle in, that's amazing that God asks us to be a part of something that's bigger than our life, bigger than our lifetime, bigger than human history, to be a part of that. So when we talk about mission, that's what we're talking about. And so this morning what we're going to focus in on is the fact that there, is, there are times and places where you and I are going to have to demonstrate incredible courage in following Jesus and fulfilling his mission. Now when you think about what God's mission is, you think, well, how can anybody object to wanting to be with God who created us? But because we're sinners and because we have our own tendency to choose our own way, people will resist this amazing invitation from God. People will fight against us. People will push up against us. They'll, they'll push back from us. They'll, they'll react against the church. They'll react against Jesus. Why? Because something inside of them doesn't want to relinquish control of their life. We all know what that's like. If you've come to Jesus, there comes that moment where you have to relinquish that. You have to release that. That's why there's resistance. And therefore, you and I have to talk about this thing called courage. But really what we're going to talk about is the opposite of courage, which is fear. Fear is the driving force in our inability to embrace Jesus' mission. 
It's the number one reason that we don't enter into Jesus' mission and we sit on the sidelines because we are ultimately afraid of what might happen to our lives, what we might lose, what the cost is, what pain we might endure, all those things. We step back, and that's why we love to applaud and send missionaries. Go get them, right? We're like gung-ho for missionaries, but we never see ourselves that way. But all, all of us are called. See, one of the things that happens when you and I follow Jesus, especially when we engage his mission, is that you and I may think that we don't have fears But you and I don't know the fears that we have until we actually encounter circumstances where those fears get exposed. And many times in our life, we don't realize that until we're confronted with the very thing that scares us to death. Anybody ever had to face a fear in your life? All of us have. Some of you won't even raise your hand because you don't want to face that fear right now because you're afraid. I mean, our, our fears are varied. Now, I've shared a little bit of my story. When I was younger, when I was in, in late like elementary school age, into middle school, I had extremely overwhelming anxiety um, to the point, I mean, just crazy stuff that, that I would do because of the fear. Just, I was afraid of everything. God did some amazing work in my life at that time, and, and some breakthrough happened in my life, and some freedom, and, and some kind of overcoming fear. But, but I, I didn't realize that there was still some underlying fear in my life that had been rooted from when I was a kid, and it, and it, it kind of popped up when I was like 25 years old. Kim and I had been married for a couple of years, and... and uh, one of the things I grew up with, with my overriding fear was I had, and you think this is silly, but I had this like amazing, incredible, overwhelming fear of roller coasters. Scaring death. Anybody want to confess that you can relate just a little bit? Okay, there's more of you this service than last service. I guess first service is more courageous than most of us, right? But I, so when I was a kid, the, to me, the worst possible scenario was to be invited to a birthday party at Magic Mountain. Because Magic Mountain had every ride that scared me to death. And so I grew up going to Magic Mountain a lot of times, and you know what I would do? I would go with my friends, we'd all, they'd all be talking, we'd get to the line to go into a ride, and I would sit on a bench and wait for them. And usually they're in summer when it's like 150 degrees in Santa Clarita, and you're sitting there by yourself sweating. It's not very fun, but I remember just even then feeling so much fear, I wouldn't even go on any ride. And so, so I'm 25, Kim and I are married, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, life's great. And then my friend from high school calls me and said, hey, I got a couple tickets to Magic Mountain, you want to go with me? I'm like, yeah, that would be great to connect with you. And then I hung up the phone and I paused for a minute and I thought, he just said Magic Mountain. I hadn't been to Magic Mountain in 15 years. And so I thought, oh no, that, that means all the rides that I avoided when I was a kid and all the rides they've added since then are there. And so I thought, well i got to find an excuse and a reason to get out of this. I don't want to do this. It scares me to death. I'm 25 years old. Come on. Grow up, right? So I go to bed the night before, still planning on going, and I wake up at like 2 in the morning, and I, and I can't go to sleep, and I'm like consumed with fear. I actually woke him up. I said, you got to pray for me. And I said, stupid. It's roller coasters. Come on. I'm like overwhelmed. I'm like, I'm coming up with excuses why I can't do it. So she prayed for me. She went back to sleep. I didn't. I stayed up the rest of the night. And when I got up in the morning... I just sat there and thought, this is ridiculous. I cannot allow fear to be the factor that determines what I do and what I don't do in life. And so I realized this wasn't about roller coasters. This was something bigger. So this is what I said. Okay, God, you're in this with me. I know you are. I know you're with me. So I'm going today, and I'm going to go on every roller coaster that scares me to death, which is all of them. So we got, it got to, to Magic Mountain, and my friend, to this day, he still doesn't know how afraid I was. And we went on all of them. X2, Goliath, Scream, Colossus. Revolution used to scare me. That's like, why even waste your time, right? 
all the, I mean, everything that they had at the time, we went on it. And I remember I got to each time like, oh, I hope I can do this. I hope I can do this. In fact, it's when X2 used to just be X, and it literally had come out like three weeks before, and everyone was freaked out by it. And so that was the first ride in the front car of the day. It's like God said, you're all in. Here we go. And I remember I got to the end of the day, and I faced every single one of them. And you know what? I had a blast. Now, there is one thing, and it's really not fear. It's more of I just don't like the, the feeling of direct falling is, is drop of doom, Lex Luthor. Some of you love that. If I'm going to do that, I might as well go up to 10,000 feet and jump out of a plane and just do it all the way. You know, it's not the falling part. It's the hitting the ground part that's the bad part. So, but you and I, all of us have fear. And until we run into something that brings that fear up, we don't realize it's there. And one of the things that is the greatest barrier to God's mission in our lives and in the church is that we're afraid. And we're, when we, we don't realize we're afraid and we're confronted with something, that fear that comes to the surface causes us to back away and to say, let somebody else do it. I don't want to do it because it's too much for me. I can't handle it. Jesus understands that, and that's why in the words that we're going to look at today, he challenges us not to be afraid. He char- challenges us to have courage. So starting in verse 24 of Matthew 10, I'll read from 24 to 31. In Jesus' words, he says, The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called, Beel, has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in, in the dark, speak in the light. What has happened in your, in, or what I have whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and, and, uh, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So in those words, Jesus describes for you and I reasons why we should not be afraid. And he begins to walk through those. And so I, I want to highlight those because he's challenging us saying, listen, you're going to have to face fear if you're going to follow me into my mission. You're going to have to face fear if you just choose to peer follow Jesus with your life. You're going to have to face that. But it becomes the determining factor whether we engage in his mission or not. And so look at verse 24 and 25 because the first thing Jesus says that you and I are not to be afraid of, don't be afraid of, is don't be afraid to be like Jesus. You think, well, wait a second. You know, that's what, what following Jesus is, is to become like him. But some of the things that Jesus went through and some of the things that Jesus experienced, they scare us to death. Jesus talks about in verse 24 and 25, he's doing this, his illustration of student teacher and and. and uh, servant and master, and he's saying there is no servant that's greater than their master. There is no student that's greater than their teacher. What the teachers teach or the masters say, ultimately, the students have to follow through. They have to be like them. That's what a good teacher is. You become like them. And so Jesus is saying, listen, just because you're my students or you're my servants and I'm the master doesn't mean that you get a free pass on all the things I'm going to walk through. As, as though somehow suffering and persecution and hardship are only meant for Jesus, but we get a free pass because he's taken it all. He's taken our sin and our punishment for our sin on the cross, but following him many times reflects his experiences. His being marginalized, him being isolated, him being persecuted, him being falsely accused, him being mocked, all those things, they become a part of our journey because in order for us to truly follow him, we have to become like him 
in every way. In fact, throughout this, the New Testament, you see this all ongoingly, that difficulty and persecution is a part of following Jesus. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go on, go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's a guarantee. It's not real exciting and real promising, is it? Every one of us will have to experience that if we choose to follow Jesus, especially into his mission. The apostles understood that. Paul wrote about it. They experienced it. But what was their response to this tension and this pressure and this resistance and this persecution? In Acts chapter 5, listen, verse 41 and 42. It says, his speech persuaded them. They called, this is is the apostles before the Sanhedrin. It says, they called the apostles in and they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. This is what I love, verse, next verse here. It says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. When was the last time you and I got up in the morning and said, man, I am so excited to suffer for Jesus today? We don't get excited about that. But they, they counted it as a privilege that they were being persecuted because what Jesus was doing in them and because what they were sharing about him. That was a part of the deal. And, and even Paul talks about truly knowing Jesus comes along with having to endure some suffering and some pain and some difficulty. In Philippians 3, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And we want to leave this little phrase out. And participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. It's a part of the journey. If we're going to be like Jesus, that means that we're going to have to experience things that Jesus experienced. And why do you think it is that God does that in our lives? Why don't we just get a free pass? I mean, Jesus, you take it all. You did a great job on the cross. You can have the rest. We'll take the, the free pass. It's because apart from that strain and that tension and that persecution, what requires courage in our life, you and I won't become who God called us to be. Because there's something that happens in us when we have to put it on the line, we have to have courage, we have to make a decision, I'm going to follow Jesus, that God does something in us that shapes us and changes us, that apart from pressure, you and I would never learn it. I don't know, maybe you're like me. Sometimes I know for me, I almost need pressure to do better. I know when I I was playing basketball in high school, my grades were always higher during basketball season because I had no time. And so I had to force myself to really be intense and go after it. When during non-basketball season, my actually grades my actually dropped. People think, well, they should be better. No, I needed that pressure because it, it helped me to learn things that it forced me to do things I wouldn't normally do or not choose to do. Anybody who, who who's drives, anybody remember learning how to drive a stick shift for the first time? Remember how, how fun that was, especially when you're in Southern California? So when my, the car that I learned to drive on was an automatic, and then the first car that I bought that like broke down after four, four months was an automatic, and then the next car that I bought was a stick because it was cheaper. And so about three or four months before that, my, my brother-in-law took me out to teach me how to drive a stick, and so he took me to a parking lot, which is nothing like real driving, and I stalled it all over the parking lot, and then he made me drive home for like two miles, and I stalled it like ten more times. And I, that was like the extent of it. And so I hadn't really driven a stick until I got this car. I lived in Van Nuys and I worked in Hollywood. And there was only one vehicle for me to take, and that was my car. So I still remember to the day driving and getting on the 170. Anybody been on the 170 at 7 a.m. heading into Hollywood? There's a few friends on the road with you at that time, isn't there? 
And I remember as I'm driving, you know, if you've ever, remember when you learn how to drive a stick, you're like praying profusely for green lights. I don't want to stop. I don't want to get back into first gear. If you're first gear is the worst thing. And so I'm praying on my way to the freeway, Lord, let it be a light day of traffic. Let it just be flowing smoothly. I get on the freeway. It is gridlock. I mean, dead stopped. So from where I got on the 170 down to where I got off down in Hollywood, I think I stalled it like five, six times on the freeway. I got hand motions and mouth gestures and all kind of stuff. You know, people are really friendly in L.A. when you stall your car on the freeway. But I did that, and I remember I got to work and thought, oh, I survived that. And then when I got in my car to drive home, I never stalled once. It became second nature. And the reason why is because I had to force myself in the morning to drive at the worst possible time to learn how to drive a stick. And it made me learn faster and better than if I would have done it in the safety of a parking lot. And I think sometimes when it comes to following Jesus, we want the parking lot option. I want it easy. Don't make it hard on me, you know. But Jesus says, no, you're rush hour. You're in the middle of traffic. You're stop and go. You're going to have to learn this. And it's going to be hard, but this is the only way you're truly going to learn it. And this is the only way it's truly going to shape who you are is if there's pressure. And obviously that's something you and I have to learn. Second thing Jesus goes on to challenge us not to be afraid of is he says to not be afraid to speak the truth when confronted with a lie. So verse 26 and 27, look at verse 27 first. Jesus says, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What uh, is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. What he's saying to his disciples is, the things that I say to you right now, kind of in private, there's going to be the moment where you're going to need to share this kind of truth with those around you. And it's not going to be easy because you're going to have to be willing in the best way that you can Not to you be offensive, but what you're going to say may be offensive to people. The truth that's going to come out, that's in private, that's going to be public about who I am, some people are not going to be able to handle it. But you're still going to need to be able to share the truth. Especially when Jesus goes on in in looking, and you look, the the religious leaders had accused Jesus, we'll talk a little bit about, about this in a moment, of actually casting out demons by the power of Satan. They were, they, were, they were so messed up. They're making these false accusations. And so Jesus is saying, even the things that, that are said that, that people are going to go after you because of the truth that you might speak, they're going to counter that with a lie. You have to be willing to speak the truth. That's difficult because we will many times will say, well, yeah, I, I'm going to stand for the truth, but what if you're confronted with the truth actually might cost you something? That's when it becomes real. What if what Jesus has taught you and you've learned from him, there's a moment where he's, by his spirit, he's pushing you and he's saying, you need to share with this person. You need to say this. Don't be offensive, but you need to share the truth. They need to hear it even if they react against it. And there's that, that moment where your intention, like, I know if I say this, it's not going to turn out well. They're going to get mad at me. They're going to reject me. But who are they really ultimately rejecting? Jesus. You and I have to be willing. There's those moments. Have you ever had one of those moments where you know you're like, I have to tell the truth, but I know the truth is going to be costly. And you don't want to tell the truth. You, you just you want to actually, you just want to lie. Why? Because you want to save yourself. You don't want to get stuck in this. I, when, one of my friends, when we were in middle school, he and a couple of his buddies thought it would be a great idea to break into our junior high and vandalize it and steal some things. And so after a couple of weeks, the police did some investigation and they figured out who it was. So one day, another friend and I were out in our neighborhood and the police pull up in front of our other friend's house and they go up to the door and they knock and no one's there, and they come walking out from the door, and they see us in, in the street, so they came over, and they started talking to us. They said, hey, do you know Eric? And I said, yeah, I know Eric. He's one of my good friends. And they said, well, have you talked to him lately or seen him? I said, no, we haven't seen him. He said, you know, has he 
have you heard anything about what's going on, where he might be? And so they're asking all these questions. And so as we're having this dialogue, the police officer's facing me, and I'm looking down our street, and down at the end of the street on the corner, Eric starts walking around the corner. I'm looking at the police officer, I'm looking at Eric, and I'm thinking, oh, no. Eric, why'd you have to come home right now? And so there's a part of me that's like, no, I don't want to say anything because I know if I say it, Eric sees that I'm talking to the police and he knows it's going to be me and I, I know that it's going to be the end of our friendship. Then the other side is I know ultimately I have to tell the truth. And so finally I looked at the officer in the eye and I said, Eric, just turn the corner and he's walking your way right now. He turned around and Eric saw him and Eric went running and he and the other officer jumped in the car and they, Eric got like two blocks. That was as far as he could run. And they got him, and that was the last time I ever talked to Eric. He never talked to me again. I can pretty much figure out why. He knows I was the one that turned him in. Think, well, how could you do that? The truth had to be told. And ultimately, it cost me friendship on a much bigger level. There's going to be those moments where you know you're not trying to be offensive, but out of love and compassion for somebody, you're telling the truth, but the truth is going to be painful, and it may be costly. Jesus is saying what you've heard and been taught in the dark, in secret, what's been whispered in your ear is going to come out, and you're going to need to share that. You're going to need to speak the truth. And the reason why is because ultimately you and I have to understand the reason that we can have that ability is that because God will vindicate us. One of the biggest issues of the reason that we don't speak the truth in love into people's lives is because we are afraid what it'll do to our name and our reputation and our relationships. Because look at verse 26. Jump back one verse. Jesus says, so do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known, which means whatever happens to your reputation, whatever people say about you, and Jesus has the right to say this. They're accusing him of casting out demons by demons. He says, listen, don't worry about it because the truth ultimately is going to come out. If it's not in this life, it will be someday when everybody stands before Jesus. It will come out. That means you and I don't have to be the defenders of our reputation. I'm not going to ask you to, to, to raise your hands, but think about how many times in your life have you kept your mouth shut because you knew that if you said something, it would put a hit on your reputation or who you were or what people thought of you. All of us had of one, at one time or another. Jesus says, you don't have to worry about that because what, what ultimately, it's, the truth is going to come out in the end and you don't need to be the defender of your own reputation. Jesus will do that. Jesus has done that for all the people who've chosen to follow him. Anybody remember Joseph, Old Testament? Go through Joseph's story in Genesis and find one place where Joseph defended his reputation. He didn't really defend his reputation. I think the only error that that Joseph might have made is a little bit of arrogance when he shared his dreams with his brothers. Probably didn't go over so well when he pretty much said, you're going to bow down to me. Usually doesn't go over well with older brothers. But throughout that, I mean, you know the story of Joseph. I mean, what happens to him? Because of that, his brothers throw him in a pit, and then they sell him into slavery, and then he gets falsely accused of rape of Potiphar's wife, and then he gets thrown into jail, and he gets isolated and forgotten in jail, and then eventually, long story short, what happens to Joseph? Joseph ends up being the right-hand man to Pharaoh, and at that time, in the world, Pharaoh was the most powerful man alive, and he put everything under Joseph's authority. So in a sense, Joseph became the most powerful man in the world. But how did Joseph get there? Did he go by climbing the ladder and 
and keeping his mouth shut at the right time or defending his honor and his reputation. No, he just simply followed God and wherever God placed him, realizing God was working a bigger purpose. That's why when Joseph came face to face with his brothers, he reminded them what was intended for harm, God has used for good because what God was about doing was not just building Joseph, but he was about saving his people. And it was through Joseph that God saved Israel. That's huge. But Joseph didn't have to defend himself. And it's true for you and I. We don't have to defend ourselves. God will call on us to say, listen, you need to speak the truth because somebody who doesn't know me needs to hear it. They may not be able to handle it right now, but they definitely need to hear it because God will do something in their life in the future. Then look at verse 28. The third thing that God, Jesus tells us not to be afraid of is not to f- be afraid to face physical death. So he says in verse 28, the first part, he says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So Jesus says, Don't be afraid of physical death. Don't be afraid to die. No, no big deal, right? None of us fear death. All of us fear death. Because majority of our life is spending, spent, how do we avoid death? Isn't that true? We try to be healthy. We try to avoid car crashes. We try, I mean, get into your car. Car's perfect uh, analogy of our life sometimes. How many safety systems are on our cars today? Tons. And we like that because we want to be safe because we want to survive our accident. How many safe me- safety mechanisms do we put in our life? A lot. Why? Because everything sometimes about our life is the avoiding of death. And why is that? Because we have perceived death as loss. Think, well, it is lost. I mean, anyone in this room who's lost a loved one, you have lost something. But if you recall, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to die. He calls us to surrender. He calls us to deny ourselves. And if you've already died to yourself, then physical death is not a big deal because you have nothing to lose. See, that's why when you read through the book of Acts, Some of the stuff in Acts is insane. The things that, the courage that the apostles had to do what they did, Paul sometimes is either borderline courage or stupid. I don't know which it is. Seriously, the stuff that he does. But he was never afraid. Why? Because he had already died. That's why he wrote in Galatians, listen, I have been crucified with Christ. I've died with him. The old way I used to live, that's dead. And now the life that I live right now, It's Christ living in me. It's not me. Paul died once already, so he didn't have to worry about dying again because he had already surrendered. He had nothing to lose. But when you and I hang on to this life so tightly that we just, we can't, we can't let go of it and we accumulate stuff and our life becomes about what we want, then we have everything to lose. And that's why we want to play it safe. That's why we want to pray for and applaud and support the missionaries. But God forbid I ever go do anything dangerous like that. Because I have, what, too much at stake. You know, I've heard people say this. It's tragic, but they say, you know, young people from like 18 to 25 are perfect for missions trips because they have nothing to lose. They usually don't own a house. They're not married and don't have kids. They got nothing to lose. But then, man, once you get married, you have kids, you buy a house, you get a car. Now you have everything to lose. And that's why, you, you know, you have to be careful because you have to make sure that you don't cause your family to lose out. Remember what we've gone through this passage? Remember Jesus has talked about, we'll talk about even next week. He talks about, listen... He's going to even cause tension in families. Why? Because you're going to have to choose to follow Jesus sometimes even over your own family. That's difficult. But it's that if you and I surrender everything to Jesus, we have nothing to lose. That's why Paul said that crazy statement. For me to die is what? Gain. 
Living is what? It's Christ. He's living in me. But dying is what? It's not loss. It's gain. That's why Paul could do what he did. That's why Paul could start all the churches he did and go on all the missionary journeys and face death and, and many times go through great struggle and pain and suffering and still have a good attitude. When was the last time you were flogged and thrown into an inner cell and tortured and then your response was, oh, let's just worship Jesus? It doesn't happen to us. That was Paul. Why? Because he already lost everything. He had nothing to lose. Can you just imagine, just for a moment, what would life look like if you and I lived with that kind of courage? See, when you and I don't, when we live in fear, you know what life becomes? It becomes maintenance. How do I maintain what I have? How do I hang on to what I have? And you and I become fearful of everything. We try to protect ourselves and protect our family. Why? Because we're afraid we're going to lose. And the worst possible thing for any person who chooses to follow Jesus is to live a life of maintenance. Just doing time, making sure I stay safe so that someday I can go to heaven to be with Jesus. If you and I actually believe that, I don't think we fully have embraced who Jesus is. Because if the Spirit of God lives in us, we will be unsettled in that lifestyle. There'll be something in us that won't let us live that way. We'll be constantly uncomfortable because we realize I can't live in maintenance because there's too many millions and billions of people around the world that are unreconciled to God that need to know that there's God that loves them. Therefore, I have to be driven by that. Not afraid to actually die. And then the fourth thing going on, actually staying, understanding that, because sometimes you come out and say, why, why does Jesus say that? Why? Why does he say, don't be afraid to face physical death? Because he goes on and he explains there's actually something worse than physical death. Look at the next part of verse 28. He says, rather be afraid. This is the only time in this passage that Jesus says there's something to be afraid of. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's something to be afraid of. And that is, there's something worse than physical death. There's what happens after physical death. After physical death is an accountability. Hebrews tells us it is appointed to man once to die and then judgment. So when we die, then we're accountable for the life that we lived. And when we stand before God someday, God has the ultimate determining decision on our eternity. And if you and I live the life of maintenance and never were consumed by his mission as Jesus was for the world, and we stand before him someday, he's not going to be impressed with the job that we had or the car that we drove or the city that we lived in or the house that we owned. He won't be impressed with any of that. He won't be impressed on how much we were able to save for our retirement and how well we were at managing money. He won't be impressed with any of that. What he'll look at is he'll say, what did, I, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with it? That's why Jesus told the parable of the talents when the, there's a master who was traveling away and he gave three servants money. And you know the story, two of them make money, they double his money, they risked their money that he gave them to make more. And then the third one, because he was afraid, dug a hole in the ground and buried it. And then returned back to his master what his master had given him. If you recall that parable, do you know the word that Jesus uses to refer to the, the servant who was afraid? Do anybody recall? He used the word wicked. I gave you something, I invested in you, and you were so afraid of losing it, that you hung on to it. And in reality, by hanging on to it, you lost it anyway. Why? Because he says, take what he has and give it to those who've invested and risked. Because they're the ones that, and then he uses the phrase what? Well done, good and faithful servant. The one that risked, the one that had courage, the one that laid it all out, the one that wasn't afraid to let go of everything. That's the one that Jesus says is the one who ultimately is the one who 
gets the reward, is the good servant. I've been paraphrasing this, but let me just read Mark 8, 35 and 36. Jesus says this. He said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain their, the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? You and I could gain everything in this life and lose everything in eternity. That's the greatest tragedy. That's the greatest tragedy. Remember in, in Matthew 7, Jesus over and over again, he said, listen, when you do this, when you do this for the praise of people, you've gotten your re- reward and you've lost out on the re- eternal reward. Better to not be rewarded now and be rewarded later. And then the final thing with some, some points about this, that this is the underlying foundation that Jesus lays out for you and I in verse 29, 30, and 31. He says that you and I should not be afraid to trust God's love for us. Here's the foundation of why you and I can live courageous lives. Here's the foundation of how we can have courage going into God's mission. It's because God loves us deeply. And he goes on in verse 29, and and the reason God loves us, and the reason we know this is true, is because the first thing that's true about you and I is that when we say yes to Jesus, we are in God's family. We're a part of God's family. We're a family member. Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. I love the fact that God calls himself father. There's a reason for that. Because coming in to relationship with God through Jesus is becoming a part of a family with the ultimate father who knows what is right and what is best and what is good for us. And Jesus says, listen, because you have a father who cares deeply for you, he even cares for when a sparrow dies. He cares that much. And Jesus later on says, how much more are you and I worth than a sparrow? But he even knows that, that detail of who we are. We're a part of his family. And if you and I are part of God's family, that means that the father that we have is ultimately in control of everything. He, we, use, we use this big term. God is sovereign, which means God is in control of everything. If you and I lived in life believing that God really is sovereign in control of everything, that means that everything, good or bad, that ever happens to us is something that God is at work in. That nothing happens to you and I outside of God's control. Sometimes we don't live that way. We have compartments. This is the God in control, and this is the God out of control. This bad thing happened, or that couldn't be God in control of that. Let's bring Job back from thousands of years ago and have an interview. He'll tell us differently. It's part of the, the, the process that God walks us through. That that means if I understand that, when I follow Jesus in mission, I face physical death or I'm persecuted, guess what? God is still in the mix of it, and God is only allowing to happen what he wants to happen. And if you and I come to that realization, then what we think is persecution that we can't handle is the very thing that we know that God is in the midst of all of that, and he's using it for his glory. If you're here a couple weeks ago, I played a video clip from Joseph Sohn, who's a, who's a Romanian pastor who faced probably more persecution than any of us will ever face in our life, but learned through the persecution what God was up to. And one of the things that he said to one of his interrogators that they didn't like too much is he said, I know you will only do to me what my God plans for you to do, and you will not go one inch further. I'm sure his interrogator wasn't very happy with that statement. But he understood that the guy sitting across the table from him who was threatening to kill him could only kill him if God was going to allow him to kill him. And if he did, it was going to bring glory to God and Joseph Stone was going to gain. He got that. That would be amazing. Someday, I someday want to be able to, to not just say those words, but really believe that. That I believe so much in God's sovereignty in my life that I'm not afraid of anything. 
because I know God is still in control. Even though life looks like it's out of control, he is still in control. And if you and I really believe that, we understand the depth of his love for us, that everything that he has, and that's why the definition of love is God. That's why the Bible says God is love, which means everything that God does or allows to happen is because he loves people. You're like, well, that doesn't make sense because we're human and we don't understand, but God loves everyone, so he allows things to happen that ultimately will fulfill his purpose of reconciling the world back to him through Jesus. Second reason why you and I can understand God's love is that you and I are known intimately by God. Verse 30, Jesus says, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Anybody want to admit when you were a kid you tried to count how many hairs were on your head? I did. I think I got stuck at like 50 because I couldn't tell if there was one hair or two hairs or, you know, as you get older, it's easier to count, isn't it, for some of us, right? Yeah, that's right. Amen. The others would just give up and shave our heads, right? So you, you have this, this intimate knowledge of something that not even you and I as human beings can calculate. How many people have lived over human history? Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions. And the God of the universe has the ability to know exactly how many hairs are on any person's head at any given time of all the billions and billions of people. That's rather astounding. I don't think there's enough computers on earth to track that kind of information, but the God of the universe can. He's got like unlimited servers that he can re- retract all that or hang, hang on to all that kind of information. But it's so amazing that he knows each individual person. He knows us specifically because he designed us and he created us and he knows every detail of who we are because he is the master. He is the creator and he has created us for a purpose. He has not created us for our purpose. He has created us for his purpose. And that's why when he formed you and I, he did it with intent. He did it for a reason. He did it so that ultimately, not only could we experience reconciliation with God, but we could also be people who were designed to help other people do the same thing. He had an intent in mind. I'm not creative at all as far as artistic ability. I can barely draw stick figures, seriously. But I marvel at people who have the ability to take something that they can see in their mind and they can translate that especially onto a canvas or something. That they know how to execute that. They can, they can make it come out of their minds and creatively with their hands. They can do something and it comes alive. It just, I'm amazed at that. A number of years ago when we were pastoring our church in Ventura, the church name was Lighthouse, and we had a, a very accomplished artist came to the church and she said, listen, I, I want to bless the church, so I'd like to actually paint a large mural of a lighthouse for you. I'm like, Wow, okay. And she said, I, I want to do it for free. I just want to bless the church. And she had a spot right in our lobby where when people would walk in, that was the first thing they would see. And so, so she had this huge canvas at home that she was working on for months and painting this thing. And we didn't want to put it on the wall because we did, if we moved out of the building, we wanted to take it with us. And so she brought the canvas in and we put it up. And I just stood there and I was just in awe of it. I mean, the detail of what she did was incredible. But, but as we're standing there, she goes, she goes, I, I painted this picture specifically for this spot in the building. I said, well, I think it's good in any spot. She goes, no, no, no. She goes, this spot is the, I painted it with this spot in mind. I said, well, explain. So she goes, come here, come here. So in our lobby, we had two entrances. We didn't have one in the center. We had two entrances that would come from the side. So when people would come in, as they saw the painting, they would see it from the side. 
So she says, listen, she goes, what I did is she goes, the path, there was a, there was a you were looking at a lighthouse that went, looked out over the ocean, and in front of you was a field, and there was a path that led to the lighthouse. She said, I painted this in such a way that wherever you stand, the path will open to you. Like it's pointing at you, like it's welcoming you, so that when people walk in, they felt like they were being welcomed. I said, really? And she goes, yeah, come over here. So we went over, way over to the right. We came in the door, and she goes, look at it. I'm looking at it. And sure enough, the path looks like it's open to me. It leads like right up to the lighthouse. She goes, come here. So we went outside, went away around, went to the left side. She goes, look at it again. And I'm kidding you. I'm not kidding. The path moved. From the time I went out the right door and came in the left door, it like shifted over and was pointing at me again. And I'm like, no way. And so I stayed inside the building site and I walked across and the path followed me all the way across. And this is not like computer generated. It's not 3D art. It was just an oil painting. I was like amazed at how she did that because when she began painting on that canvas, she knew what the ultimate purpose of the painting was going to be. Therefore, everything she did aligned itself with so that painting could fulfill its purpose of being something that would be welcoming to people when they walked into church. Now just think about this for a minute. The, the Bible in Ephesians 2 talks about that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, way before we ever were a thought in our mother or father's minds. God designed us for his purpose. That means that you and I understand that God loves us enough that he has made us and equipped us to do what he's called us to do. That means that you and I never, ever, ever have the right to say to God, you got the wrong person. Saying to the creator, you created me wrong for this purpose. Not going to happen. Moses tried it, don't try it. You and I do. We make the excuse. But God's love is so profound. Let me close with this. The third reason that we can understand God's love for us is that you and I are ultimately valued by God. Verse 31, Jesus says, Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So Jesus is giving this explanation of this comparison. You and I are more valuable than a bird. Good news today, right? You can go home feeling good about ourselves, right? We are more valuable than the sparrow that Jesus or that the Father oversees even the death that he cares about of a sparrow that falls to the ground. We are far more valuable than they. God places the highest value on you and I, and we know that because ultimately what did Jesus do? He gave his life for us. He placed the highest value on you and I. He's chosen us. He's purchased us. He owns us. We belong to him. Why? Because he has a bigger purpose than our life. He has a bigger purpose than you and I just seeking after happiness for 70 or 80 years and then dying because the pursuit of happiness ends in sadness. The pursuit of righteousness ends in happiness. You and I choose what we pursue. And if we understand that, we know that God has chosen us for a purpose. And for some of us, we have to get over the whole playground syndrome that we grew up with where we were always the last one picked. Or there's only always one person worse than the last person picked. It's the person never picked. Anybody remember that? You get put on a team by default because you were the last person and nobody had, someone had to take you. And we apply that somehow like to the way that God works. Oh, there's somebody more talented. There's someone more gifted. You're going to call somebody else. Let them go do it, but, but not me. God chose you and I. In fact, the word called in the scriptures is synonymous with salvation, that God called you. And so many times you say, well, you're called. You're called to be a pastor. You're called to be a mystery. All of us are called. If you say yes to Jesus, he's called you to be a part of his mission. And when you're chosen for a specific purpose, you and I have to say yes. Because it's the reason that we're alive. It's the reason that we were equipped. And the reason we're prepared, the reason we were designed is because God has that purpose for us. 
When I graduated from college, the, the seniors every year in Bible college would put on a service that was all driven by students. So it was the worship, ushers, teaching, everything was all done by the students. And we did it at Angelus Temple, which is the mother church of Foursquare down in L.A. And so the year that I graduated, the, the committee was putting together this team of students that was going to facilitate the service. And they approached me and they said, listen, after talking to the committee, we feel like we're going to have two main speakers and we want you to be one of them. And I thought for a minute, you got the wrong guy. I did. Because I knew where the service was, is Angelus Temple. There'll be a lot of people there. And at that time, Angelus Temple was broadcasting live their radio on radio, their Sunday night service, which means if I mess up, it's not just in front of a few hundred, it's in front of thousands. And it's recorded for all time. And I started thinking, there's no way you got the wrong guy. And I, I'm thinking, why would they pick me? And going through all of this, and I remember sitting down with one of my professors, and he said, no, listen, they, they feel like you represent the class well. And that you're able to do this. And so we've chosen you. And I remember when he explained that to me, I thought, then I can't, I can't say no, even if it scares me to death. I have to say yes, because they looked at me and thought, I have what they lo- are looking for. I have what's required for the job. So they chose me. The God of the universe looks at every single one of us who's chosen to follow Jesus and says, I pick you. I pick you for my mission. I pick you to overcome fear. I pick you to be courageous. I pick you to change the world and see people reconciled back to me. He picks all of us. And that's why as we move forward to church, it is all in. Jesus' mission and following Jesus is not a spectator sport. There's not stands. There's only a court or a field. And you and I have to be willing to step on it because he's called us to that. So let me pray, and and we're going to conclude in a moment. We're going to pray for someone who's actually walking through a very courageous step in their life as they say yes to Jesus' mission, and we'll conclude our service that way. But let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for, again, your words in Scripture that tell us about your heart and mission in the world and what you've called us to. You know that by nature, Lord, that we tend to be fearful and we tend to be full of excuses because we don't want to face what might happen in our lives. But Lord, you know that you've created us and you've wired us and you've prepared us to be people who ultimately change the world. And for some of us, Lord, courage might look like simply walking across the street to talk to a neighbor. It might be navigating our way across a classroom to talk to a classmate. It might be setting foot in a laundromat in our city to build relationship with people. It might be going to the dream center into the inner city, which scares us because we're afraid for our own safety. It may be even beyond that, going into another country where we don't have the comforts or the safety that we have in our own nation. But Lord, each one of us comes up against those fears. And Lord, I pray today that by the power of your Holy Spirit and the love that you shine into our lives that we would be people of courage because the world is at stake because eternity is at stake and because you love people so much you've chosen us to be on your mission with you so lord push us prod us make us face the fears in front of us so that ultimately the result is more and more people will be reconciled with you more and more people will stand in the throne room worshiping you more and more people will experience forever why they were created to be in relationship with you because we were willing to have the courage to be in your mission we thank you jesus in your name amen amen hope where you at hope denton she's right there everybody say good afternoon to hope 
Wow, you're getting applause already and you said a word. So, uh, Hope is, is here. Come on over. Stand over here with me. Because she is walking through an amazing journey that God's led her on uh, that kind of culminates this next week as she's heading out to Kenya uh, for a few weeks to serve God's purpose there. Um, and this is a huge leap for Hope because Hope's never been out of the country before. And so she's not just going to a close country. She's going to a distant country because God's called her for this time to do that. And so I, I thought, it, you know, as I was thinking about when she's leaving and knowing the timing this week and thought, Lord, you've orchestrated. Hope is a demonstration of the courage it takes to, to walk out Jesus' mission. And so we're going to pray for her, but I wanted her to have a couple minutes just to share what she's going to be doing in Kenya so we can pray for her. So Hope, go ahead. Um, I will be going to Kenya with an organization that is founded in Portland, Oregon called Open Arms International. Um, there in Kenya, they have established their village that they run, which contains a medical camp and a children's orphanage. Um, So while I'm there, I'll be volunteering at the medical camp, um, helping people who are obviously in need, um, and also helping the people who will be helping them. Um, We also have prayer tents set up at that place. At the orphanage, um, I'll be presenting the gospel to the children, whether it's through music, um, arts and crafts, just playing with them, loving on them. Um, just being with them. Good. I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked you in first service, which is tell tell us why what made you make this decision to say yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Kenya. Um, I was already going through a season of change in my life. Um, that yeah, there you go. Just, yeah. just don't touch the end of it. Sorry, my <laughs> bad. Right. Um, I was already going through a season of change in my life, and I've always wanted to go to Kenya, but immediately God kind of whispered like. Mm-hmm it's time. Um, and I'm scared out of my mind, but, um, he knows me better than I know myself. So I knew to go now. Exactly. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, would you stand? We're going to pray for hope. I'm going to ask you if you would just go ahead and extend your hand this way. And what you're doing by extending your hand, sometimes you think, why do we do that in church? It's because we're too big of a group to get all the way around hope and lay our hands on her. But this is it saying, I'm in agreement in praying for her and laying hands on her and sending her out to what God's mission is for her in Kenya. So let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm excited for hope. I'm excited for what you're doing in her life. And I know, Lord, that this trip is part of a journey that you're working out in her life to use her, Lord, to to care for people, to share the truth of your gospel, to ultimately help people to be reconciled back to you. And, And the reason, Lord, that you're doing that is because you've already done that in her. She's experienced, Lord, what it means to know you. And so, Lord, I thank you for the courage that you're giving her. And so I pray, Lord, as she goes, even if she's just said, Lord, she, she's scared to death. But, Lord, what she said is so true. It's true of all of us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know what we are capable through the power of your Holy Spirit better than we know ourselves. And so I pray that as hope goes, there will be things in her that will come out of her that she is shocked to see your power work through her, that she never knew was there, Lord, but because she stepped into what is uncomfortable, what requires facing fear, what requires courage, there will be things in her that will come out that will be something that will shape the rest of her life. And for the people she'll be working with and caring for, Lord, we pray that you would use by your spirit this time, this team, and this village, Lord, to care for the needs of those who struggle, Lord, with basic necessities of life, for those who have yet to fully understand your love for them, for those who have yet to come to understand the gospel, for those who have yet to know you, Jesus, I pray that the result would be 
the poor would be cared for, lives would be transformed, people would be set free, and eternity would be impacted because of hope and because of the team as they go. Cover them, protect them, guide them, Lord Jesus, as they go so that ultimately you would be glorified in all of this and your kingdom would be extended. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.